Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peachtree Hoops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops. Uh, we are recording a day after the conclusion of the NBA Finals. Uh, Glenn, what did you think of the Finals? But the games were incredible. I mean, I, I have to be transparent and, you know, admit that I, I was – I had a little hard time watching it because of the officiating. I seem to be, I seem to be an outlier there, but still the games were incredibly competitive uh, for the most part, kind of came down to final possessions and the, and the Bucks just, just took control. Uh, I thought it was one of the more entertaining series we've seen, you know, in a while uh, in my view. And, uh, but it's, there's, there's something satisfying about seeing a team like the Bucks who have been kind of just bumping into it for the last two or three years, whatever. And, you know, the, the, the voices that Bud needed to be replaced, you know, there's something satisfying about seeing a team kind of that's been through that, figuring it out, putting it together and, and accomplishing, you know, getting the championship and, and all the validation for all the work um, and, and how resilient, you know, they've been, whether it's continuing to refine the roster by adding Drew and PJ and, you know, other pieces that they've added. Um, and then, you know, Bud, you know, getting down to like a, an honest to God, seven man rotation, <laughs> you know, for the most part and him kind of, you know, pushing himself to, to go past what we, I think we, what we all know his um, kind of comfort zones are and stuff. So there's just something satisfying um, about uh, kind of being witness to that. So, but what, what did you see? I'm still sort of intrigued by just sort of the size aspect of things that <coughs> I guess there were, you know, there, there were points in the series where it felt like the Suns almost kind of wanted to go at Giannis and Brooke Lopez. I, I forget what they finished in the defensive player of the year race for 2020. Uh, Giannis won. I think Lopez was quite high up there too. So to see them almost deliberately seeking out those two as a sort of a pick and roll matchup felt a little bit funny, but at the same time, you know, the answer for the Bucks so many times was just be big. That wasn't necessarily always Brooke Lopez big because I think he's the one who's, you know, just sort of the most conventional center, but you know, it's kind of fascinating how they, they play with size, you know, how they're working in so many lineups with Giannis and Tucker and Portis and Lopez. And, you know, part of that is, you know, who are your best seven players? Like you just mentioned. And, you know, that, that sort of leads to the inclination to go big when you don't have Dante DiVincenzo and such. But, you know, between Giannis and even Middleton, you know, they just – I'm sort of fascinated a little bit uh, by the big ball. And, of course, Giannis is such a unique player at his size. Right. Uh, you know, it, it got me thinking back to when Jason Kidd kind of made him a point guard for summer league, I think, before his second season – Right, uh, but uh, I, I'm curious to 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 take note of what you thought were some of the adjustments that sort of turned this series from one where the 
the Suns won two straight to the to the Bucks winning four straight. Yeah, I thought the biggest thing to me was um, you know I, I think it happened fairly early. Like you know, sometimes I think fans can uh, understandably miss something a losing team like so. Like in Game Two, the Bucks were kind of searching, and then in Game Three they came out and ran a lot more action where Giannis was the screener and not just him diving to the rim, you know, different things to kind of get him to a post or to get him a touch right in the middle of the paint. And, and, you know, I noted at some, at one point that um, Giannis was working so hard as a screener that I don't know how many guys at his level of superstar would do that. You know, that's not the, you know, it's just, you know, most guys at that level are used to playing with the ball in their hands and facing up and kind of creating their own shot and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And it seems to me like the biggest and most fundamental breakthrough the Bucks had was Giannis accepting that he just wasn't going to get to do that as much as most other players at his level in the league and him embracing all of the other things, you know, and, you know, the broadcast, you know, Jeff Van Gundy especially was pointing out all of the Middleton, Giannis pick and roll, you know, and things like that. Um, But to me, the biggest thing was Giannis committing to doing kind of the dirty work and doing the less uh, glamorous and less highlight um, oriented kind of work that opened up and unlocked, that unlocked a lot of stuff for Middleton in spaces where he likes to operate near the nail, um, it gave you know, Drew some angles that, that he likes kind of working from the, you know, right at the edge of the three-point break. And, and I just thought that when Giannis went into that role, not that he was not ever attacking the paint, especially like when the Suns would go zone and they would kind of get spread out. He'd just go right at the guy who was in the middle of the zone and get a layup. But, um, but I thought the biggest thing to me was, was just Giannis committing to doing a lot of the kind of the dirty work uh, and trusting that he would still be able to, kind of make the impact that he, a guy at his level, you know, naturally wants to make on a game. And, you know, when, when in games where Middleton, you know, put up big shots, a lot of that in my mind was because Giannis was kind of, you know, getting him, helping him get to his spots. And then all of the attention that they, that Giannis and Middleton drew, you know, kind of freed up Drew to get get the angles he likes and stuff. So to me, that was the, the biggest and most fundamental um, thing. I mean, we, we could, on the defensive end, the Bucks switching was kind of there the whole series, but they just got better at it, it seemed like to me, every, every game. So th- those were the big big themes I saw in terms of how they had – I would call it more of a refinement because it was almost like they were just, you know, tweaking it. It was the same thing, you know, the same stuff for the most part, but kind of more volume on the honest screen setting and then just kind of getting a little, um, a little better, a little tighter in all of those actions on both ends. And, and I thought they were just much, much better um, not getting separated um, on ball screens defensively, just better at, at switching. Uh, so those were the things, the big thing that jumped out at me. Yeah, you mentioned Giannis being willing to be a screener more. And, you know, one of the things that irked me most about the, the Hawks series with the Bucks was that I don't know if it was, you know, the, the strategy or the coaching tactic or, you know, just sort of personal defensive style. But, you know, when they would have Clint Capella guarding Giannis, Giannis's first inclination was to sort of, okay, you know what, I'm going to 
I'm going to take the ball and here I am, I'm 17 feet from the hoop, but I'm, I'm actually going to back it out to 24 feet and get ahead of steam and attack now this way. And it just felt like we never saw that in the final series. And, you know, the problem that the thing that irked me, the problem I had with it was that, you know, understandably, I think you're, you're worried about, you know, some dribble handoffs where Giannis could be the screener in that sort of situation. But it, in that Hawk series, it just felt like they never did that. Like it never, it never turned into that when Giannis was pounding the ball uh, and, and taking a couple steps back to get, to get momentum. It felt like at that point, I just wanted Clint Capella to stay back and not trail Giannis out. It felt like, you know, it felt like to me, like Capella was, was playing into his game because then with that momentum with Capella further from the hoop, you know, he could just, get an angle that he wanted. And I just wanted Capella to stay back. And, and I understand the risks associated with that, but it, it never felt like the bucks were, were playing that side of it. They never, they never went into dribble handoffs out of that kind of action. And, and, you know, you didn't really have to worry about Giannis becoming a de facto screener screener in that kind of setup. So I, I, I was kind of surprised not to see it, but, you know, just like in the Hawks series, you know, that was the one scary thing that the Hawks, that the that the Bucks did on offense really was just the Middleton Giannis pick a roll. I mean, it was just it was so clear that it was just head and head and shoulders above everything else that that they did on offense. I felt like, you know, in watching Phoenix that they just didn't really you know, Giannis included, they just really didn't respect any of the Bucks as three point shooters with the ball in their hands. Uh, except for Middleton. You know, when Middleton had the ball in his hands, they were quite attentive out beyond the three-point line. But if, you know, if if Conant had it or Holiday had it out beyond the three-point line, if they wanted a pull-up, it felt like Phoenix was like, you can have it. We'd much prefer this than having some sort of drive and kick. Um, I, I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, but... Yeah, but it's, what, it's, it's always interesting to me to see a team kind of have a blueprint and you, you kind of summarize it there that we're going to prioritize defending the paint. We're going to try to compete on the, on the boards and not let the bucks, you know, get extra chances. And we're going to let them try to create, you know, three point shots. Um, and we're just going to play the math and the bucks shot the, the ball in the series. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I have no doubt that, they shot over their normal baseline by a decent margin, especially later. At least their playoff yeah. baseline, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And um, and that's that's the strange thing is to – we almost forget kind of at times what they were in the regular season because of how teams look just look different, you know, in a playoff context. And that's, that the ability to kind of knock down shots was still there. I mean, it was – you ask yourself, like, well, you know, Brent Forbes is not able to play and, you know – how does that factor into their kind of, you know, composite shooting capability um, without him and, you know, and, and those sorts of things. And, but it was that, the ability to, for them to create good shots and to um, very conscientiously recognize when the Suns were really prioritizing defending the interior and just confidently step into shots that they knew were going to be there because of what the Suns were presenting defensively. And credit to the Bucks for I'm not something about that. <laughs> credit to the Bucks for you know just saying hey these are this is the right shot you know that the the the, the Suns defense is giving us so we're just gonna step into them and put them up because it's the right shot you know even if I've missed 
even if, you know, for Drew went four for 20, whatever, what was that game four, maybe, um, if I remember correctly, you know, he, they, they just kept generating shots and it, it, it certainly worked out for him. What did you think of what Milwaukee did defensively on Chris Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it, it was interesting to see Drew, um, you know, what, what Drew did to Chris Paul in this series, which was, you know, fairly shocking to me. It wasn't quite what he did to Dame in that series where the Pelicans swept the Blazers in the first round, what was it probably like three years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't quite like that, but he turned Chris Paul into something other than Chris Paul. <laughs> you know, the, the turnovers and his inability to create shots for teammates, you know, you know, as the series went on, game six and seven, especially, I'm sorry, five and six, I guess it was, uh, it only went six games. Um, and especially in game six, the, the Bucks were like, hey, Chris, you want to you know, create these 15-foot shots for yourself? How about it? You know, um, but he, you know, they, as a result, Booker had to work really, really hard. They had to use, you know, kind of two screeners when, you know, lifting uh, Booker into a single DHO wasn't nearly enough to get him right. room to operate and shoot. And it had to be two. And, uh, and so they just uh, caused the Suns, I think, to have to commit so many resources to creating space for the shots that they want to generate for Booker, especially. And then, you know, if you look at the impact Bridges and Johnson and even Jay Crowder kind of had in the series, you know, typically it's Chris Paul setting those guys up with skip passes. And Chris Paul just could not get to any of that stuff. And a lot of that was just Drew is so freaking good defending on ball. Um, And, but the other part is just that the Milwaukee presents so much length and those passing lanes that kind of cut those things off. And they were, you know, with the way that, with the way the game is officiated, you know, in the late in the postseason, they were bumping him harder, bumping him off of his angles and not letting him kind of, you know, get um, kind of those, the dribble trainer penetration path that, that CP likes so much. So, you know, I just, they, they got better at switching and, and kind of getting in um, into spots where it was harder for, uh, Chris Paul and, and Booker at times when he was working on the ball to draw the switch that he wanted and to avoid that and to, you know, operate with the switches that they wanted to make and stay away from the switches they didn't want to make. But, I mean, so much of that is like, what a what a defensive luxury Drew, Drew Holiday is. It's it's maximized by all the length that's behind him when he's defending at the point of attack. But what a luxury to um, be able to kind of throw him at, you know, one of the greatest point guards of all time and what might be, you know, have been his only chance to, you know, um, maybe get a ring. Yeah. I have to be careful because you, you, you mentioned something with officiating off the top and I, I tend to get lost in that at times, but. Uh, Same. Shock, it, 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 it did <laughs> feel to me like, you know, when I was watching Drew Holiday in the series, you know, Thought one was, uh, you know, where where was this guy offensively when the when the Hawks were playing him? Because uh, it seemed like he he played over his average uh, against the Hawks offensively. Uh, in this series, it didn't seem like he was nowhere, uh, any way near uh, as effective on offense for for most of it. Uh, but defensively, man, he he was a terror. And uh, but that that was noticeable to me as it just felt like he had a very uh, he had a very lenient whistle, I thought, in the finals. He he did. Um, I thought his technique was still 
excellence. Yes. Yeah, he oh, was yeah. he was pushing the limits on everything, which <laughs> which I you know I suppose guys should, should do. do. Right, yeah. exactly. And then you let the officials kind of set the um, sort of the boundaries for what you're going to kind of get away with and not. Um, you know, I I I don't know why, but um, you know, in this officiating year, I, I I'm not I don't want to go too long on it because it's not that interesting probably. But basically, what I I feel like Giannis is kind of babied in a way i don't think intentionally i think he's hard to officiate for sure he's so long right. like when he's shooting at the rim can you can you see if he's getting contact like on his arm and for example see if he's landing before he actually releases the ball you know how do you how do you do that with a guy who's that you know unusual in, in that way so I, I get that it's hard i don't want to just kind of bang on the officials it's it's, it's hard work um but you know there was like two possessions in in game last night where booker just got kind of hammered by Giannis uh, at a really critical point in the game. No call. Giannis went down on the other end, the very next possession, and got what I thought was a really questionable call. And, I, I, you know, superstars get calls that other guys don't. And, you know, that's kind of a fact of, like, I don't – I've never been able to get my head around why that has to be uh, a principle. <laughs> you know, in the league, it is what it is. Um, and, you know, so I, I, I thought most of all the Bucks just kind of pushed the limits more. And – you know, do they deserve credit for that, even though it drove me crazy? Probably, you know. But what got me was their willingness to basically commit defensive three seconds all the time and never getting called. I mean, yeah, and Van that, Gundy pointed that out on the broadcast. He's like, you know, it, had, it hasn't been called in over a month. <laughs> right. And, I mean, and it's different if, like, if, if Giannis is on the weak side just inside the lane and his guy is, you know, generally in that vicinity – but Giannis and Lopez would come all the way across right in front of the rim when, for example, Booker was trying to work in the mid post and Booker has no chance to get to the rim. So his defender knows that. And so it, 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 to me, it just took away so much of what Booker likes to do. And as, as I'm watching that, and, and, and honestly, in, in an unemotional way, because I'm not, I'm not you know, attached to either one of these teams, it frustrates me to see a guy like Booker not be able to go to the things that he's best at right. because they're not calling that stuff. So I don't want to make the whole series about that, you know, because what the, a lot of what the Bucks did was phenomenal and was dominant, you know, especially late in the series. But it just – it I don't understand why, you know, if you're going to let someone commit to fit to three seconds, like can you call it at seven or eight seconds? <laughs> you know, can we have some some boundary? We're just not going to let it completely go. And And – and also offensive three seconds, you know, um, you know, I don't, I think there's a lot of that that can understandably and reasonably let slide, you know, you don't want calling that all the time. You know, if a guy is in the, in the paint when someone else is kind of attacking the paint and everyone is kind of, uh, you know, collapsing to the, I don't call that, you know, but they would like Lopez and Giannis would set up right in front of the rim while like Drew or Chris was, you know, probing in the mid range and just stay there. And I was like, how do you, how do you keep them off the boards, you know, when they're doing that? So, you know, I thought the Bucks got a lot of leeway, uh, but I also think that a part of that was them pushing the limits. And that's, you know, and for whatever reason, the Sun's not doing that. And, you know, I, I wonder, like, I'd love to ask Bud, did they have analytics on that? Did they have analytics that said they're never going to call defensive three seconds? They're never going to call offensive three seconds. So we're just going to sit in there. You know, I, I, I wonder if, if, you know, what kind of factored into how they decided to kind of push the limits where and with what types of calls, um, because you know, um, you know, 
I, I don't know that Bud has that brand of being kind of really analytically driven, but he's, you know, pretty, you know, factually driven. If, you know, he believes in kind of the principles of what he's trying to get his team to do. So I wouldn't be surprised if at all if there was an analytics kind of input into how they decided to kind of push the officiating, you know. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you, <laughs> and maybe this is the wrong, the wrong no it's like it's the probably the wrong question to to segue into is like you know and, and honestly i think it you know kind of ties into where i was starting which is you know the bucks and having a short rotation and using so many bigs but just what what do you think is sort of the state of the nba like if you just kind of had to make your state of the nba address in terms of play style and I guess, you know, officiating is a part of that and, you know, the overall product, uh, you know, in terms of what the gameplay is, uh, you know, where is the NBA? Because, you know, we talk about the Hawks a lot, but I think it's important, I guess, at some point to just sort of understand a little bit more about the league that they play in. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, one of the things that I would point out as being most important is that, um, recognizing that a guy who relies on physicality like across the regular season is you know, very unlikely to ever have you know a lot of value kind of delivered to his team especially with all of the re- recent increased emphasis around freedom of movement and all, all that stuff right all that stuff we don't want to kind of get into all the you know the nerdy parts of what how that stuff's officiated uh, but in the regular season, they're they're pretty on top of you know a lot of that freedom of movement stuff. Um, but those guys like a PJ Tucker, you know, their value just skyrockets the deeper you get into the postseason. And so in my mind, like you have your your defensive, um, you know, your primary defensive players, the guys that you're going to throw at ball handlers at that point of attack, in my mind, have to be capable of playing physically in the postseason to maximize kind of what they offer, Drew can do that. You know, PJ can, can do that. You know, Middleton in some ways, even though he, he'll, he'll, he'll flop now and then when he kind of loses his leverage and stuff like that, he's, you know, pretty cagey, but, you know, he has some of that as well. And, um, and so that's, I think, something I take away. And, but it's not just, in my mind, them being kind of physical defenders, it's how much experience they have. If you look across the board, right. I think everyone that was in the rotation for the Bucks for the down down the stretch of this series had at least six years in the league or more. And the Suns were playing Cam Johnson year two, you know, McCall Bridges year three, DeAndre Eight year three. And I, I think that's a lot to ask, guys. Their first two, three years in the league, their first playoff experience is right. to, you know, have them try to get their heads around, like, how differently the rules are applied and how differently the the officials mm-hmm. kind of interpret what they're seeing. I, you know, so I think it's the multidimensional in that you've got to have some, phys- some physical defenders. So if we kind of kind of look at that in a Hawks context, it's like, you know, DeAndre Hunter, for example, is next year or like in the next two years, is he going to grow himself as a physical defender? Or is that, or is his, does his like makeup and personality not lend itself to that as much as it does maybe someone else? You know, because he's such a nice guy, you know, and stuff. And that's the thing to watch for the Hawks. And so there's that thing is can 
your primary defenders apply themselves more physically in the postseason, especially late in the postseason, then they have the experience to adjust on the fly and to trust themselves doing things that they don't have a ton of repetitions doing. Um, I think experience was a massive factor in how this series went. You could see Monty trying to tweak things, and it was like, McCall just c- couldn't couldn't get it, and you know, and Cam Johnson just couldn't get it, and Aiton couldn't understand how to adjust the way he's defending, not get all those foul calls, you know, and but I think that's totally nor totally understandable that those young guys had that. So for me, it's the you know we talked about this with the Hawks, how how unusual it is for the Hawks to get all the way to a conference final their first time into the postseason, you know, the normal path is the Bucks bumping into second round exits. You know, you know, being pretty non-competitive in a in their one conference finals. You know, the, the head of this one, and keep continuing to press into those obstacles and the things that trip them up and working through that. That's normal, and that's that, and that's something to, for us to think about. I think, but you know, if the Hawks want to be like really serious about themselves next year, you know, you know, is Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter, you know, heading into you know year three playing a ton of minutes at the wing, if that's the plan, you know, it's just kind of a hypothetical, you know, is that going to give you what, what, what you need, or do you need a guy who's in year nine, 10, 11, you know, who can be super physical and functional, more functional than like a Solomon Hill, you know, offensively, for example, um, to kind of, to kind of do that. I, that's, that's when I take a step back and tease out the things that I feel like I learned from watching this series in the conference finals as well, and I look at the Hawks in terms of what their aspirations are, it might be immediately. That's the thing I ask myself is like, would they look more like the Suns with these young wings that don't have years of playoff experience, not understandably, not being able to kind of adjust on the fly because they're, they're, they just don't have the experience baseline to, to kind of uh, have the confidence to do that. Or if the Hawks want to chase a finals appearance this next year, does it, does Travis Link need to be more aggressive in bringing in, you know, more veteran presence on the wing. And what does that look like with a herder and a hunter <laughs> and a reddish in the middle? You know, what does that look right. like? Or or do they stick I, with the I fans? thought Herder did a good job of that. Like, you know, he, he, did. Figured, he figured out how the rules changed and he's not the most physical guy or the most, you know, the, the strongest guy, but I, you know, he figured out, okay, here's, here's what I can get away with. Yeah. And, you know, I thought it was good. I, I have to say that in, the finals I didn't particularly care for watching PJ Tucker or Bobby Portis. It just same, you know, with their their switching tactics, you know, they'd they'd be tasked with guarding somebody smaller and quicker than them. And it was just a matter of, okay, you know, what sort of hand check can I get away with here? And right. you know, if if they couldn't get that hand check, they were cooked. But you know, it was just a matter of they they weren't gonna call literally every single hand check that yeah, they committed, yeah, but they committed them. And the and the thing that that probably bothered me the most in terms of like impacting my ability to enjoy the series was it was Chris Paul. It wasn't some, you know, your third or fourth year point guard that's on his way up. It wasn't like John Morant. It was Chris Paul and he couldn't get a single call on the hand. I mean, that says it all to me. And he's 36 and they're still holding it to (laughs) – and, Hang you know, on for your life, yeah. He's a no doubt first ballot Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest point guards of all time. And he couldn't get to the free throw line, and he yeah. couldn't get a call. And that bothered me a ton, especially when I would see Giannis, Giannis get, you know, what I would not. I mean, 
it calls that he got would have been called in the regular season. I just thought he got a lot more um, deference from the officials when, when contact was made on him. And, and I don't want to spend too much time trying to figure out. Well, here, I'll give you, I'll give you the perfect segue. We're not supposed to break news uh, at midnight Eastern time. <laughs> uh, we're not supposed to react to breaking news at midnight Eastern time, the day after the finals ends. But uh, Woj is tweeting that Onyeka Okongwu is going to miss approximately six months with a torn right shoulder labrum. He's already undergone surgery to repair. Yeah. Wow. Yikes. Yeah, that's rough. That's, uh, yeah, and, 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 you know, that's super unfortunate. You know, he gave, Okongwu gave us all a lot to be excited about watching him in this postseason. And you and I talked a lot heading into the playoffs, like how much is he going to play? How much can he play? How much should he play? We talked about even if he's not doing well, should they just stick with him for the repetitions and the experience? You know, that's, you know, those were, that was a point you were often raising in our conversations, I recall, you know, and, um, but that kind of leads us to something the Suns didn't have that impacted them, but, you know, they didn't have a veteran, like a true, center veteran behind Aiton that could come in and kind of stabilize things when Aiton was in foul trouble or Aiton was just kind of struggling with Giannis or what have you, you know, they had, you know, Sharage went out with the injury. He's not really a center. I mean, by by, by today's standard, he's not a rim protector, I should say in that way. He's, he does a lot of good stuff, you know, you know, and organizing and things like that. And then, you know, Frank Kaminsky, he's not a defensively, he's not a center, you know, not in that way. And so, you know, if, for example, the Suns had a, I don't know, like a, a JaVale McGee or, you know, uh, try to stay away from the name Dwight Howard, but, you know, as an example of what the Lakers used last year with their championship or, you know, a, even like a Dwayne Dedman, you know, some, someone who's in that seven, eight, nine, ten years in the league has some legitimate, um, you know, rim protection to offer and can handle 20, 25 minutes of time and not have a defensive fall off. You know, I think even if the Hawks went into the season with, you know, Capella ready to go, and if Okongo wasn't dealing with this injury, they'd still, I, I still think it would be a huge mistake to come in with Bruno as the third center because you need, a, you know, a guy that can play in the playoffs and keep your defense stabilized. Even if that guy plays as the third center all year long and has a completely different value proposition in the playoffs, if you're a serious team that's really trying to kind of maximize the window you're in right now, I think you have to take that third center spot and treat it very differently than the Suns did this year. Now, did the Suns expect to be where they were? I mean, well, they signed Chris Paul. So they were being serious about the season, no doubt. Um, but, you know, I think they started – I think Damian Jones was their second or third center when the season started, if I recall correctly. And so, you know, they were kind of looking for, I, I guess, guys that had something to offer at that position – um, and just couldn't find it. And I thought the Suns could have won this series. Would you know may, if they had something behind Aiton that was a veteran that could handle some of the things that you needed to throw at Giannis in the way he attacked the paint. Yeah, and you need that guy to guard Giannis. And the, on the on the flip side of the court, they can get away with playing with somebody like Bobby Portis because Giannis can be a rim protector. Right. It's not fair. He's too good. He's he's he can do too many things. <laughs> he could do a lot. Yeah, when he becomes when he's a ninety percent free throw shooter, you have no shot. <laughs> <laughs> 
so if you're the Hawks, what do you do to make a contingency plan to, uh, you know, it, it's funny that you think this way now, but it's sort of, it's almost like a two-stage plan. It's like, okay, well, how do you, how do you triage the time that you know he's going to be out in the regular season? Mm-hmm. And part B is sort of how do you uh, make a playoff plan? Because, you know, that has to be the goal now. The, the Hawks have to have high expectations because they, they did the damn thing this year. And uh, <laughs> right. now, it's, now it's okay. You might have Okong for the playoffs, but you might not. And so how, how do they go about figuring out – I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard because you don't know quite what the roster is going to be, but uh, you kind of have to figure Capella's – around for the season almost surely. I mean, I, I clearly, I think there was some, I, w- I wouldn't even call it speculation, but I think some people who were sort of uh, laying out the Hawks' future on, on, a, on a whiteboard, you know, at least you kind of look about it and you, you think about the number of young players that they're going to have to sign to big deals over the next few years. And you think about Capella's next contract and whether or not that's going to be something that the Hawks are interested in. Right. And then if you don't think they're interested in that, then, you know, you've got a trade deadline coming up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's certainly something that I think you have to consider just sort of playing out the scenario, but at the same time, you need Capella now. <laughs> right. And yeah. obviously he was a big part of what you did in the playoffs too. Yeah. And I, I got frustrated when I saw fans on Twitter <laughs> suggesting, Oh, let's trade him. A Congress ready. He's like, Okay. I feel like there's an underappreciation for what Capella did all season long to kind of get them to where they were, but right. that's a, that's for probably a different podcast, but um, you know, well, for me, I, I think it's clear that Bruno being the backup center is a non-starter. I, and, and you know, I'm still, I'm not bullish on Bruno, like being some, you know, really good player. I just think he has enough uh, potential to warrant getting an opportunity to, to play for a team that's still developing their team, you know, and, you know, he's, he's got good hands and he's good at DHL. You know, we've, I've, I've done this before, so I'm not going to do it again. But, <laughs> so I, I think part of that evaluation is are Collins and Gallo still the power forward, you know, duo. And if so, you know, because there's some noise out there, it's, it's no reporting or like that around, I mean, it just looks like there's some people that are curious if the Hawks do pay JC and bring him back, will they commit that much money to one position, if you will, you know, the power right. forward, or would they need to look to potentially move Gallo to, to not be over-invested in a single position? You know, um, that's, that's a question, but I, I, I think you have to ask, it's, it may start with, you know, do you feel like you can, how many minutes do you feel like you could play Collins and Gallo together in the, in, in the average regular season game where they're kind of the combo four or five, you know, and, and they're you know, pretty dynamic offensively, yeah. you know, especially with Trey and, and, and what he can do. Um, and, but does that fit how Nate thinks about how he wants to set his team up, you know, and how committed he is to defense and, you know, and things like that. So, you know, so it's, that's super interesting to me, you know, if, if, for example, if they decide to, Hey, we can't, you know, pay John 25, 27 million or whatever it is and pay Gallo, you know, you know, him being just below that a little bit, um, you know, 
if they move Gallo is now is it a center, a backup center that's part of what they're looking to get as a return? Or do they feel like they can use the mid level, you know, if they do end up using the mid level, you know? No, because it has to go to point guard. <laughs> I yeah, I know. I, backup you know, point guard. I'm not trying to put put Trey out on the street for somebody that comes in at the mid level, obviously. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and you know, and they, they have bird rights on Lou, so does does this make does this give Lou a little leverage, you know? Uh, I know they still probably want to kind of fit it all. You know, do they want to go into the tax this year? You know, I don't know. It seems, um, uh, and that's something that Tony and the rest of the team have to figure out. But you know, it is going to be interesting to see how Travis handles. To your point, you know, I think Brandon Goodwin for this team and what they're trying to achieve, fine as a fifth guard, if you will, third point guard, and you know, who can do some other stuff. Not good enough. As much as I like him to be the backup point guard, he needs to part of play on a team that's still like Bruno kind of still developing some stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, to be a backup, you know, full-time backup and things like that. So it's going to be interesting. Like how do they be- find the backup for trade? Do they run Lou back? Uh, you know, can Lou play every game, you know, next, next year at that age? And we, and we saw it kind of come and go, you know, for him, even across this season, you know, uh, there were some games where it looked rough, you know, really rough. And is that a viable, you know, for, for next year? So it, there's there's so much there, but it's going to be fascinating to, to me to see. I would love to see, you know, another, you know, you know kind of fairly affordable veteran be brought in to, um, to, to back up Clint and to make sure that Clint's, you know, not getting past about 32 minutes a game across the regular season. Just, you know, he's – you know, got foot stuff and, you know, he's had some knee stuff, you know, all that, all that stuff, you know. And so, it, it, I mean, it's going to be fascinating, but I, you know, they're going to have to figure out how they staff the power four position if they bring JC back and pay him. And this throws, a, you know, a wrench into the way they look at the power forward and center position depth chart combined, I think. And then that has some uh, tertiary impact on how they look at point guard depth, I think. Yeah. I wonder if this makes it more likely that they'll make a trade on draft night for a player that might be available. You know, it's that, that I haven't spent any time thinking about what this Congo news means, but you know, might they move that first round pick, you know, for uh, a body that can come in and give us something right now? You know, I don't know. Travis has some stuff to figure out for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's something, something that certainly seems within the realm of possibility. Yep. All right. What a shame. Well, what a shame. What a shame. I mean, part it of the is, game. but part of the game. I mean, you know, his rookie season, if there's one thing that you could take away that that's sort of encouraging, I mean, obviously just his style of play by the, the way he was playing in the playoffs, but you know, what a shitty season for him to come along. Like he's hurt. There's no, you know, there's, there's no summer league. There's uh, you know, he, the injury keeps him out of, all the preseason stuff. So he really doesn't even get a training camp. All his off season stuff is shot to heck. Coaching change. You've got the compressed season coaching change. I mean, he just had everything stacked up against him and he's like figuring things out in the playoffs in games (laughs) that his team is winning. I mean, you know, he's going to be good. If if he can, you know, if he, uh, I, I forget what a regular NBA schedule looks like anymore, but, uh, you know, if it's the typical uh, regular season ends April 15, you know, if he's if he's around by March 1, you know, 
I think, you know, you're, you're, he's going to lose out on all the developmental things. I think there's just so much that the Hawks would love to have kind of tried out for him offensively. Right, for sure. You know, uh, it's really been a part of that. I mean, I think I, I looked for him to be really involved with the ball in his summer league reps, you know, short yeah. roll and creation, elbow, cre- you know, and exactly. it, it, it's a shame that he's not going to kind of get that stuff. So Exactly. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, I just think that, that maybe some of that gets tabled for a little while and that comes the next off season. So it's disappointing in that regard, but, right. um, you know, I think it's a sort of injury that, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not a knee. It's, you know, it's not one of those things where you wonder, Oh God, is this going to bother him forever? I think there's a, there's less of a recurring worry as there were, would be with certain leg injuries. Uh, so for sure, I don't know. It's bad, but you know, just the way he's played his youth, the type of injury, his age. I mean, there's just so much time and I don't know. I'm still super duper encouraged that this is a, uh, that time is fleeting and this is a momentary setback. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like you laid out, he dealt with the adversity in his rookie season. I mean, a plus on all across (laughs) the board, you know, I mean, Um, what he did without all of that mess was phenomenal. (laughs) So, you know, in a way, it'll be exciting to see him kind of blow us away, you know, when he gets back on the court in, in the spring, you know. All right. Well, uh, I probably took you longer than you were expecting. Oh, no I worries. Wasn't, I wasn't expecting the midnight news dump, but uh, yeah. the Hawks have made it official. That some, somebody got woken up to send a tweet. <laughs> so uh, I guess we'll leave it at that. Thank you. Okay. We'll have to do this again soon. I know it's the off season, but. There's plenty to talk about, I think. The draft. Yeah, draft next week. Then we'll, we'll, we'll be on it. JC's restricted free agency. So, you know, Ooh. the next 10, 10 to 14 days or what? Yeah, in that Great range, season. you know. <laughs> a lot's going to be decided in the next two weeks. All right. Well, you have a good night. You too. Thanks, Kevin.